From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Leipsch. On a miserable and rainy day last March, my colleagues and I visited the Jesuit Archives Research Center in St. Louis, Missouri. The front rooms of JARC, as it's called, are pleasantly open and airy, more than the word archives might suggest. The back rooms, however, are more formidable. Protected by precise temperature controls and fire-retardant concrete, these rooms house hundreds of years of Jesuit history on enormous crank-operated shelving units. There are personal documents, institutional records, even maps, artwork, and a few antiques documenting the Jesuits' presence in what is now the United States. Our guest today, historian and researcher Nicholas Lewis, works with a portion of these records, researching the history of Jesuit-run native boarding schools. These schools were part of a larger U.S. government attempt to assimilate indigenous peoples into white European culture from the 1820s to as late as the 1970s. Indigenous families were compelled to send their children to boarding schools, effectively stripping children of their language, culture, and community. Canada has a similar history of residential schools, and in 2008, the Canadian government began a seven-year Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate the history. The U.S., however, has not systematically examined this history to date. Jesuit leadership in the U.S. knew that the Jesuits administered a number of native boarding schools, but accounts varied as to how many, where they were located, and for how long. So in January of 2022, Nick was hired to examine the archives and identify some of these basic facts. His research has confirmed 24 mission locations where the Jesuits ran a boarding school for Native children, a full list of which can be found on our website and is linked in the show notes. A note before we begin. This episode deals with trauma as well as mentions of physical and sexual abuse. Take care while listening. Nick Lewis, thank you so much for for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks to the Jesuit Conference for the opportunity to do this important work. Well, yeah. So let's get right into that work. Um, We've talked, I think, a little bit in previous episodes about the history of Native boarding schools on this podcast. Um, But I wondered if you could just give us a brief overview. You know, what were Native boarding schools and how are the Jesuits in particular involved in this history? Right. So um, a native boarding school in one sense is exactly what it sounds like. It is a boarding school for uh, predominantly for Native American children. Um, in the context of Canada, there these are referred to specifically as residential schools, and that's probably the more popular term that's being used right now in popular culture. But basically, the United States and Canada both had... A, a relationship with their indigenous peoples based on the assumption that white European settler colonial culture was superior, more civilized than Native American and Canadian culture. So uh, this attitude also pervaded the educational sphere where the assumption was that the best way to serve indigenous people was to educate them in the values of white European uh, settler colonial culture. 
what the what these boarding schools involved was the removal of children from their parents, therefore the removal of Native American children from their original culture, and having them educated primarily by uh, settler colonial um, teachers. In in this case, many of them were Christian missionaries, Protestant and Catholic, because one of the big aspects of the boarding schools was the denigration and the suppression of Native American religion and the conversion to Christianity. Um, so that's where the Jesuits also come in. The Jesuits were one of many Catholic religious orders, along with the diocesan church that participated and helped run uh, boarding schools in the United States, and one in Canada. Nick's research identified 24 locations where Jesuits ran manual labor boarding schools for Native Americans and Alaskans from 1824 to 1987. They were part of larger Jesuit missions to tribal or reservation areas. The first missions were established in Missouri and the Kansas Territory, and as white settlers pushed west, Jesuit missions moved westward too. The majority of missions were located in the Pacific Northwest. Nick and other researchers have come to define these schools as manual labor boarding schools. Particularly in the 19th century, both government and religious-run schools focused on trade training, as well as grade school education and religious instruction. In his summary of research findings, Nick writes, quote, Pupils will be taught a trade that they could use to earn money later in life. The intention was to promote a sedentary, agrarian, and industrial lifestyle and supplant the itinerant nomadic lifeways of many Native American tribes, end quote. So through archival research over the course of the last year, you identified 24 locations where Jesuits ran Native boarding schools or residential schools. Um, and so what did this process of research look like? When I first came in, um, uh, Father Penton of the Office of Justice of Ecology had a rough list of schools that may or may not have been boarding schools we didn't know at the time. And he gained most of that information through uh, email surveys with Jesuits who had worked out west or um, in Alaska. Uh, so that was the very beginning, and I helped sort of shore up that bit of preliminary research by reading a lot of uh, old, old Jesuit histories about the, about the missions that included histories of the boarding schools. Uh, these would be William Bischoff's uh, Jesuits of Old Oregon, uh, Gilbert J. Garrigan's Jesuits of the Middle United States, and William, Wilfred P. Schoenberg's uh, Paths to the Northwest. Um, obviously, the big problem with these types of histories is they're fairly triumphalist in nature. They are coming at it from the idea that the missions to the Indians were good, and the boarding schools were a, a necessary part of that. So they come with a lot of good information just of the basic facts about when some of these places were established, but they're also coming in with an attitude shaped by the time that they were coming in. Um, from that point forward, most of my job was undertaking archival research, getting into the very nitty-gritty primary source details about uh, shoring up this list, finding out dates, times, who was at what particular mission, and about how long they ran and whether or not they were a boarding school or a day school or something else entirely. And and for the, all that process, I was stationed at the Jesuit Archives and Research Center here in St. Louis, Missouri, where I mostly investigated the location of ministry records for the former Missouri, Oregon, and Wisconsin provinces. Throughout the process, I was, I've been on steering committees working with other 
um, Catholic religious organizations and archivists uh, as they are trying to you know, figure out their own histories, investigate their own legacies with boarding school movements. Uh, these include things like the American, uh, American Catholic Historical Association and the Leadership Conference of Women's Religious, all of which I've been collaborating with in trying to get a more broad understanding of the Catholic Church's involvement in the boarding school process as well. Let's backtrack a minute and talk about you, Nick. What's your background as a historian, and how did you come to this work? I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and I got my undergraduate degree at Erskine College in Due West, South Carolina. That is a Presbyterian school, so it was a bit of a culture shock. When I, in 2016, I moved to St. Louis University, a Jesuit-run university, for my master's and PhD work in history back in 2016. Uh, back in, tw in early 2019, I was hired on as a graduate assistant to the Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation Project for the Jesuit Conference. I liked my work there so much that after my term was done in the summer of 2019, I stayed on for two more years. And in autumn of 2021, I saw this opening here for the Jesuit conference. They were looking for a research historian to investigate uh, the Jesuit legacy of Native American boarding schools. And I thought it was, I thought that the opportunity to be at the forefront of another major social in justice initiative that would use my historical background would be an opportunity that I could not pass up. So I applied for it. And in January of 2022, I was hired by the Jesuit conference to act as an archival researcher here in St. Louis to get a big picture understanding, a very preliminary understanding of what the Jesuit legacy of Native American boarding schools looked like. So you mentioned um, when you were talking um, the concept of missions. Um, and so when we talk um, at the conference office um, and, and when you talk about um, Jesuit-run boarding schools, we often say school locations um, because the schools were part of a much larger mission complex on different tribal reservations. Um, so can you explain a little bit how that differs from the way that uh, government or publicly run boarding schools um, were were administered? Yeah. So uh, the, the prime example of a government run Native American boarding school is Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. Uh, Carlisle was, for the most part, a distinct unit. It was obviously integrated into a town, but it wasn't necessarily entangled in the goings-on of that town the way that a mission school would have been. So um, it, many of these missions were some of the first settlements in their area, aside from Native American settlements that existed at the time. And later on, they would become townships, much like Carlisle, Pennsylvania is now. But at the very beginning, the goal of the Jesuits was to make that school part of this giant mission complex, which meant involving uh, student life and school life with the ongoings of the parish itself. So not, not only were students and children part of these uh, mission schools, but so were, for example, their parents as parishioners. Uh, they wouldn't have been part as the, part of the schools themselves. They would have, the Jesuits definitely made attempts to separate children from their parents in order to inculcate them in Christian religion and white uh, settler colonial attitudes. But nonetheless, because of, 
they were part of this mission complex, which itself was part of a larger parish that made it such that the school was also a center of normal Catholic life. The idea of cemeteries and uh, the problems that come from cemeteries at boarding schools is fairly well known at this point. Because the, because, uh, the schools were located on missions and therefore parishes, often children who died at boarding schools were buried on parish cemeteries. So it's an easier job to locate where some of these burials are than there might be at Carlisle or, a, or even a place like Kamloops. Kamloops Indian Residential School, which Nick is referring to here, was at one time the largest residential school in Canada. In 2021, ground-penetrating radar discovered the probable presence of 200 unmarked graves on the grounds of the school. The discovery sparked renewed conversations in both Canada and the U.S. about the need to investigate residential school history. I visited the site of Carlisle Indian Industrial School back in the fall with Father Ted Penton, a Canadian Jesuit and one of my bosses here at the conference. Ted has led this research effort into Jesuit-run residential schools in the U.S., and we were visiting Carlisle to give context to some of this work. Carlisle is now part of a U.S. military base, but from 1879 to 1918, thousands of indigenous students from over 140 tribes were enrolled at the school. By taking children thousands of miles from their local communities and placing them in a school with other Native children who spoke different languages, Carlisle aimed to strip children of their individual cultures, and it became a kind of blueprint for other boarding schools during this era. While Jesuit-run schools operated differently in that they were located on reservations, and often the student populations were from one tribe or a group of local tribes, Nick notes that reservations, especially out west, were often large and remote. Children might attend school hundreds of miles from where their families lived. Family separation and cultural assimilation were still primary intents. So the Jesuits operated boarding schools in the continental U.S. and Alaska um, from the 1840s to the 1970s. So that's a huge 130-plus year span. Um, and during that time, U.S. government policy um, toward indigenous communities and toward the idea of, of indigenous education changed multiple times. Um, so I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of the different policy eras and how they impacted some of the schools that you've researched. I, I think there are two big poles of ideology that um, the boarding school movement sort of falls in between at various points. At the very beginning, the idea was assimilationist. We, uh, the United States wanted to take Native American communities and assimilate them into white co uh, colonial settler culture. On the opposite end is self-determination, the idea that tribes should be able to govern by themselves and live according to their own customs. And by the 1970s, that was the more, that, that was the more established form. But at the very beginning, it was purely assimilationist. And government policy sort of navigates between these two poles and often isn't somewhere in the middle. So as a result of that, um, the history of the boarding school movement also changes. Uh, generally, U.S. boarding schools began, are set to begin with, in 1819 with, with the Indian Civilization Fund Act. At that point, the United States government set aside a fund for benevolent societies to found schools, boarding schools, in order to carry out this assimilationist mission. Uh, benevolent societies could have been 
any sort of men of good moral standing, but obviously Christian missionaries were would have fit that um, balance much more easily. And the Jesuits were some of the first to actually benefit from that fund because in 1824, the same year that the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established, the Jesuits opened their first boarding school he- here in Florissant, Missouri, um, called St. Regis Indian Seminary. As the American Indian removal policy filtered in from the 1830s to about the 1870s, especially under Andrew Jackson's presidency, the Jesuits were moving west at the same time that Native peoples were being displaced from their homelands. So the Jesuits were, in 1835, they were sort of given full reign to the Western United States at the Second Council of Baltimore. And in 1851, a Jesuit, Jean-Baptiste Mige, was made the Vicar Apostolic of Kansas, which at the time included most of the Great Plains, not just Kansas. And obviously these were the areas where people, uh, tribes like the Osage and the Potawatomi were being removed to, um, late first into Kansas where the Jesuits had boarding schools and then into Oklahoma where many of them reside today. After about 1870 or so, the government policy shifted again. This time the main change was that things were becoming more regulated. Under President Ulysses S. Grant, um, he established what's called the peace policy. The idea that the United States would try and have peaceful relations with the Western tribes that they had often had very violent um, interactions with in the past. And in doing so, he began allotting different reservations as they were being established to different missionary societies. And one of the problems with this process was that you know, Catholics had been in the Western United States for almost 30 years at this point, but they were being removed in favor of Protestants, which led to a lot of interdenominational fighting. But more than that, um, one of the big aspects that came out of this process was that contracts were being signed now. The government would actually sign missionary societies to contracts that they would follow certain regulations, the main one of which was that they were to stamp out Native American language in favor of English-only instruction, and in doing so, they would receive direct subsidies from the government for students every quarter. Around the time that Carlisle was first founded in 1879, the Jesuits had already had about a 40-year head start on the boarding school pro- process, just that with Carlisle, the the actual mechanisms behind it were becoming much more firmly established. Um, 1896 is a pretty big year because in that year, Congress voted that sectarian schools for Native American students would no longer be funded directly by the government. The actual the actual formula for this would, would be that they would be defunded one quarter every year until 1900, at which, case, at which point they'd be defunded completely. Under the Teddy Roosevelt administration, uh, the government sort of found a loophole because they still found the, the boarding schools to be an important part of U.S. westward expansion, but they couldn't, they had, they now had this legal obstacle to actually funding them. So instead what they did was they allowed missionary groups to charge tuition to the tribes that the tribes could pay out of tribal business funds, which were directly subsidized by the government. So in this way, the schools were being indirectly subsidized by the government through Jesuits taking money out of tribal business funds. So that ended up becoming a fairly controversial practice, one that was only um, legally allowed through a Supreme Court case in 1908, Quick Bear v. Loop. But by the 1970s, many of these tribal business funds were completely depleted, and the Catholic Church's taking money from those funds was a, a good part of that. 
According to a 2020 investigative story written by Marionette Pember, all told, the Catholic Church siphoned about $30 million from local tribes. This estimate, based on just nine years of records, is thought to be an undercount. Later on in the 20th century, the government policy became much more erratic, though. After about 1928, around the time of the Great Depression, the government issued the Merrill Report, which was a congressional investigation into all of the boarding schools. And while they, and while the Merrill Report uh, compared Catholic boarding schools more favorably to, say, government-run secular boarding schools like Carlisle, they nonetheless found that there were a lot of depredations being undertaken here, which aroused a lot of sympathy in the American public. So during the Great Depression, through, through the Indian New Deal in 1934, the attitude seemed to shift from that assimilationist rhetoric towards self-determination. That shift did not last very long. After World War II, uh, the House of Representatives began initiating the Indian termination policy, which went decisively back to the role of assimilationist, going to the point where reservations would be completely done away with and Native tribes would be integrated into white society by giving individual Native Americans some form of American citizenship. And after the 1950s, that trend changed again with the American Indian movement coming out of the 1960s and the, and the depletion of tribal business funds by the 1970s, such that self-determination became the ideology of the day, leading to things like the Indian Reorganization Act in 1972 that basically gave tribes sovereignty over their tribal lands including funding for education run by the tribes, not by the government or by missionary groups. I think the point that um, you make and that the research shows about funding in particular um, is really interesting, not only because, as you said, it has these effects that are felt um, long into the 20th century um, in tribal business funds and in tribal communities, um, but also because, correct me if I'm wrong, um, schools were paid based on the amount of students. Well, so, uh, on one hand, um, the Jesuits did not need any sort of financial incentive to try and get as many children into, into their schools as possible because it, the original Jesuits who came to North America from say Belgium in the 1820s or from Germany later on in the 1870s, they came here to evangelize to those people and convert them from what they viewed as paganism to Catholic Christianity. But obviously the financial incentive was there and the regulations of the boarding schools meant that they were mandatory. So they, they had the, the government's enforcement to help make sure that students were not tardy, that they did not, that those who did run away or um, try to uh, play hooky um, were brought to the school and, and forced to be there. Um, so that on, that's on one grounds, but the funding question is more important because you know there's this conception that the Catholic Church has an infinite amount of money that it can be spread anywhere at any given time, but the Catholic Church is not nearly that organized. It's not it's not a, that well organized. It doesn't have that good of a bureaucracy. And many of these schools were running deficits year after year. They were investing a lot into the, the entire mission complex, which obviously caused a lot more financial strain. And they were very interested in social ministry. So 
their costs were very high, and this money was often the only way that they could continue. Now, I don't, I'm not sure what the break-even point would have been in terms of how many students being funded by a tribal business fund or by the government would have made a mission financially solvent, but many of them weren't solvent at any given point, and a lot of the decisions in the early 20th century to either close down a school or convert it to a day school were made on the premise that the government's funding scheme was so erratic that they couldn't be counted on. And without that funding, then there's no way that they could make the school happen. Can you give us a picture of what a day at um, one of these schools would look like? The day was generally divided into the different um, hours of the day needed for Catholic worship. So they would often wake up around five or six in the morning, fairly early in the morning. They would go to morning prayers. They would have breakfast. They would spend their er they would spend morning in some sort of academic study usually, then have lunch. Then they would older students in the afternoon might have their industrial trade where where that whichever trade they were being taught, whether it's carpentry, agriculture, later on electricity or aeronautics or whatever, or the women or the or the female students might start learning laundering, laundry, sewing, cooking, whatever housewifery was expected of them. And then in the evening, sometimes there would be extracurriculars, um, especially later on in the 20th century. Often they would have some sort of other extracurricular work that they would be doing on behalf of the mission, but they would also have their evening prayers, mass, all the different types of reading instruction that you would find in a, in a, in a non-Indigenous boarding school. But for the most part, um, like you said, it's very hard to get a, a much more standard picture than that because things changed so much over time and resources were wildly different in, say, rural Alaska than they would have been in um, even, you know, near Seattle, uh, near Spokane, rather. So it, oftentimes these schools were a cabin in the woods, literally, or a cabin with an annex that had some sort of cloiture so that the women's religious could be separate from the men's religious and they could observe proper Catholic etiquette in that, in that, um, they could observe proper Catholic etiquette in that way. Um, but for the most part, the sources that when they talk about student experience, they're very much coming from how the Jesuits are perceiving them, um, generally around death because Jesuit priests would have been the ones to administer the final sacraments. Um, but up until the later 20th century, the 1950s and onward, where we start seeing things like student yearbooks and student bulletins, journals and poetry and essays, and also jubilee celebrations that record students, especially famous alumni, it's often hard to get a good sense of what the student experience was at one of these schools. Oftentimes, it's hard to find a record of, say, physical abuse at a school, because the Jesuits did not see it as abuse, they saw it as discipline and corporal punishment was something that happened in white boarding schools, and we know for a fact that it happened in indigenous boarding schools. Uh, we also know that sexual abuse happened. The Bishop Accountability website has the names of several priests who worked at these schools that were credibly accused of sexual misconduct. So we know those things happened, but it's not always in the archives in that way. Um, we do find plenty of accounts of runaways. The Jesuits are frustrated by them. They, they are often calling the authorities on them and trying to track them down. 
In one case, there was a an act of arson. A boy burned down the school in order to try and get away from it, and he was reported to the um, he was imported to the local superintendent and arrested. So there there, there are these minor isolated incidents of uh, rebellion. Uh, running away was very frequent. It's very well documented and. But other than that, uh, it's hard to track down, say, specific cases of abuse or specific cases of rebellion coming from students just through the archives. But we know that they happened. So because these schools existed as part of a larger mission on reservations, um, I think there's sometimes a a temptation to view Jesuit or religious-run schools more broadly as perhaps not as bad as off-reservation schools, as as somewhere like Carlisle, um, which is a very subjective assessment in the first place, but also based on, on some of these cases that we're talking about, credible abuse cases and research, um, we know that the truth is, is a lot more complicated. Um, so what sort of sources in your research um, did you discover about how the schools were administered? So to the larger point of the not as bad assumption here, um, that's also assumption I ran into when I was working for the Slavery History Memory and Reconciliation Project a few years ago. You know, were Jesuit slave owners better to their slaves than they were, than were, say, you know, regular plantation owners? And the, the, the assumption itself is flawed in that it ignores the fact that enslavement or forced education in this in this manner, these types of abuses are still abuses, regardless of how physically detrimental they could have been. These are intergener these cause intergenerational trauma and you know mental torment on the people that are being subjected to it. In this case, however, the conception of not as bad is coming from the idea that. As opposed to Carlisle, where students would have been taken thousands of miles away from their home with no possible chance of returning without graduating or being expelled, um, the mission sites would have been located on reservation. All of these schools would have been located some on some sort of reservation or government-ascribed boundary, with the exception of Alaska, because that's a very different case. Um, well, first of all, we, as you mentioned, Abuse and uh, these school regulations show that the 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 actual practice of education in the boarding schools was not probably any better physically than a place like Carlisle. And we also have to qualify that on-reservation bit by pointing out that reservations are huge, especially in rural Montana or in rural Alaska, where even though there aren't reservations, you know, a school located in the vicinity could mean hundreds of miles away from the child's home. So it, in any event, there's still a lot of geography being chased here as students are being put into these boarding schools. Many of them didn't have a ready, readily available means of returning home by flight or anything else. Uh, we also know in Alaska especially there are a lot of letters between the, a school superintendent and say the Department of Child Welfare. So many of these students in that context were at risk already. And a lot of the subjects of them talk about sanitary conditions, which 
may have been okay in certain places, but in some, in at least one school, the sanitary conditions were so bad that the free lunch that the territorial government would have been given to the schools was taken away because they couldn't keep their kitchen clean enough. So conditions weren't any objectively better at Carlisle, even putting aside the idea that this type of assimilationist education itself is a form of, you know, violent oppression. In his research, Nick encountered handbooks for student discipline and other school rules. One from Sacred Heart Academy in Desmet, Idaho, identifies the following as acceptable forms of punishment. Kneeling, silence, confinement, fasting, and whipping. Students could also be denied vacation days or permission to leave the school and visit family. Another handwritten list of student regulations from Colville Mission in eastern Washington describes the process for forcing children to learn English. On entering the school, new students were made to, quote, keep silent. Until he can speak English, no other language is permitted, end quote. If you go back and look at any of these sources, whether they're government-produced or Jesuit-produced, the racialized language that they used was just everywhere. You can't help but run into it. They would refer to Native Americans as brutes, as savages, as pagans, as any number of racialized epithets that you can possibly think of are uh, conducive to this situation. They, they were being used there. And what that really showed to me was that, yes, the Jesuits were often reactive in terms of how they dealt with government policy in the boarding schools, but they were also, they were goodwill collaborators with the government in this sense. They were, they were working hand in hand with them and they believed they embodied many of the same ideological presuppositions that the government had, that these, that Native Americans were inferior people, that they lacked civilization and that settler colonial culture, especially Christianity, was the only way to make, to bring them out of those barbaric roots. Um, and this is the case of the Jesuits. This also seems to have been the case of the women's religious that often came with the Jesuits and worked with them on the missions. And I, this is not an attitude that went away with the 19th century. This prevailed, at least in the boarding school context, up till the very end of it. As a historian, has this research changed or or impacted you, or did you encounter any surprises as you were doing this research? So part of my PhD work is on the history of suicide. And a couple of years ago, I believe I mentioned I worked with the Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation Project. So out of both of those impulses, I gained an interest in historical erasure, especially in archives. So coming into this project, my, one of my first thoughts was, what material am I actually going to find here that's relevant to student experience? It, it, most of it seems like it's going to be written from the Jesuits' point of view, who obviously they did not see what they were doing as a form of oppression or abuse. They saw it as saving people. So I went into the archives with that in mind, and coming out of them, I was surprised to find that, in fact, the Jesuits, being good pack rats of documentation, they kept a lot of student um, 
They kept a lot of student assignments. There are a lot of yearbooks in there that show students going about their daily routine. There are news clippings from uh, local news reports about, say, children at St. Mary's, Alaska, getting to go to the big city of Anchorage, Alaska, and experience the high life of an urban settlement. There are uh, school bulletins talking about what foods they ate, giving us a bit more texture into everyday life of the students. And I was very surprised at how much actual material was coming from the students and how much say that they had in their own assignments, especially near the the end of the boarding school movement in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. And as you say, we're just kind of at the tip of an iceberg of information and research and all sorts of, of work that needs to be done um, to both understand this history and to start um, conversations about how to move forward with it, too. Um, but in terms of the research, what are the next steps? Yeah, so my contract is over, and I will be moving on to finishing my PhD in March. Um, in Feb on February 17th, though, I will be presenting on the work that I've done for the Center for Research in Global Catholicism here at St. Louis University. I know that um, after that point, I will finish my work and I will come back to this at some other point, hopefully. Um, I know that the Jesuits West Province has hired a researcher on their own dime, uh, Dr. Ryan Booth from Washington State University. And I know Red Cloud Indian School has hired an, an independent researcher, Gabrielle Guillerme, who will be who is working out of Marquette at the moment, uh, as well as uh, Maka Black Elk, who, who is continuing his work uh, leading Truth and Healing at Red Cloud Indian School. Outside of the Jesuits, uh, the American Catholic Historical Association has won a grant to help try and fund some academic researchers who are looking into this history. And I know that the Leadership Conference of Women's Religious has been working tirelessly to try and put together a list of not just Jesuit boarding schools, but Catholic boarding schools in the U.S. that they should be hopefully putting out in a few months now. And what are some good resources for further learning for our audience members who might want to learn more about this history? Where would you send them? In the Jesuit context, I think the list that is now on Jesuits.org is a, is a good starting point just to get the basic facts. Along with them, a couple of books that are a bit more recent and a bit more um, critical than the ones that I mentioned very early on are Harvey Markowitz's Converting the Rosebud, which is about uh, St. Francis Mission in South Dakota specifically, but also gives a good look into the greater, uh, the broader Jesuit history. And Francis Paul Prukja's uh, The Church it, Churches in the Indian Schools, which focuses a lot on that contract school area, era where uh, missionaries were getting direct subsidies from the United States government. For a bit of a broader look into the boarding school movement, much, much more largely, uh, my go-to is usually Brenda Childs's uh, boarding school seasons, which explains a lot of the depredations that went into the boarding school movement, uh, as well as David Wallace Al Adams's uh, Education for Extinction, which really just gives a very broad overview of the government side of the boarding school movement, really focusing on Carlisle and its founding. That's it for this week's episode. 
If you want to learn more about the work our office is doing to uncover the history of Jesuit boarding schools, we have a bunch of links in the show notes for further information. Thanks for listening. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited and produced by me, Megan Leach. Our communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and Kristen Smith. Original theme music created by Kevin Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.